Well, good morning, friends. Uh, last year, when uh, Franz was on long service leave, we looked at uh, Jonah chapters uh, 1 to 3. We didn't actually make it through to chapter 4, and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to finish chapter 4 until Franz's next lot of long service leave. So it's a blessing, uh, and I'm grateful for this opportunity. Uh, there may be a few here who weren't with us last year, and I don't want to look at chapter 4 just in isolation. So um, if your memory is like mine, I hope it's not, but uh, we'll do a uh, review of chapter, chapters 1 to 3, and then we will uh, look at what God has for us this morning in chapter 4. We said, we said last year that the book of Jonah is not primarily about a wayward prophet or about a giant fish. They're on the stage, but they hold minor roles. Center stage throughout the book of Jonah is God. This book is given to us to, to showcase the marvelous character of our God. Through, um, uh, through chapters 1 to 3, we saw God's wonderful character displayed in his sovereignty. God controls and directs the wind, the waves, and all the creatures that he has made. We saw God's character, and I like to use the King James word for patience when I'm talking about Jonah. We see God's wonderful character displayed in his long-suffering, in his long-suffering with his servant Jonah. We also saw God's mercy in chapters 1 to 3. His mercy displayed towards some pagan sailors, a wayward prophet, and a vile and a cruel nation in Nineveh, the Assyrians. And finally, of course, we saw God's marvellous forgiveness to a nation who the Bible says all called out mightily to God, asking for his mercy and forgiveness. I love Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and rich in mercy to all who call on you. In chapter 1, we looked at what happens when a believer runs from God. We saw two things that are inescapable when a true believer runs from God. We said that you'll not escape the consequences of your disobedient choices. We, we do like to deceive ourselves. We think there'll be no repercussions for our sin. And secondly, we said that a true believer cannot escape the discipline and correction of a God who so loves his children. You know, we live lives so far short of what we believe, don't we? So far short. We, uh, I don't know why we take sin so lightly. We saw in Jonah how his disobedience very nearly cost the lives of all the sailors in the boat, and it did cost them all the cargo they were carrying, that is, all of their livelihood. We said that sin will not only sin not only affects you, but your sin will affect the lives of those around you. Then in chapter two, I really uh, enjoyed chapter two, a wonderful display of God's mercy, of God's patience, of his love towards his prophet. Jonah was a hard, stubborn, disobedient, and rebellious prophet. And it took three days, three days of no light, no food, no drinking water, 
no sleep, no escape, no way out, and slowly being digested alive in what amounted to a watery grave before Jonah would cry out to God for mercy. And I think it's wonderful in chapter 2, we saw that God's mercy was not in response to prayer, but we saw that it was God's mercy in dealing with Jonah that produced the prayer that allowed for God's mercy. Jonah, left to himself, was not going to pray. In chapter 1, we saw, didn't we, that Jonah would rather die than complete this task that God had given him. At the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw God's abundant mercy towards his wayward prophet displayed in God's merciful rescue of Jonah through the giant fish. Then God's merciful answer to Jonah. Jonah said, out of the belly of Sheol, you answered me. We saw his merciful instruction of Jonah. God brought some a little bit of pressure to bear in situation and circumstance uh, to instruct Jonah. And then we saw, of course, God's merciful forgiveness as Jonah cried out in repentance and the fish vomited him out onto dry land. Why does God do this? Why didn't God just find a more obedient prophet in Israel? I'm sure there were a lot more choice prophets in Israel than Jonah. But praise God, he chose Jonah because God is more concerned about how you spend your life than you are. God is more concerned about how Jonah spends his life than Jonah is. There's much for Jonah to learn and God will instruct him. Uh, we saw that in chapters 1 and 2 and we'll see it again in chapter 4. So that Jonah is closer to what he should be as a believer in Yahweh. Finally, in chapter 2 we saw that God not only provided the circumstances that produced the prayer and the prophet, <clears throat> but then God even provided the very words for the prophet to pray. Jonah prayed the many different themes of the Psalms, uh, sometimes directly quoting from the Psalms in his discord with the Lord. Jonah is a man who knows the scriptures very well. You see that all throughout the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah is quoting scripture even when Jonah is complaining to God. Jonah is still quoting the scriptures. <clears throat> in chapter 3, we saw the threefold grace of God. We saw God's grace in him sending a person. God didn't send a committee. God didn't send a group of people to this large city of more than 600,000 people. And I believe that God sent a person to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. What happened in Nineveh couldn't be explained by what one wayward, now repentant prophet did. It could only be explained by the grace and mercy of God. We saw then that God warns a people. And as Jonah went throughout Nineveh with this message, what did the people say? Did the people say that they believed God? No, the text there says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. And next we saw, of course, that God saves a nation. We're told that the people repented, that they fasted, that they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. 
And who would have thought that it was, would ever have been said, do you want to see what true biblical repentance looks like? Then let me show you from the Bible the cruel and vicious Assyrians and how they repented. This is what true repentance looks like. And we saw then that the Assyrians acknowledged their sin. Uh, the king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. We saw that they were appalled by their sin, once celebrated, once honoured, the subject of their literature, their art, even their decorations. Now from the greatest to the least, they covered themselves in sackcloth. They fasted and they cried out mightily to God. And we saw that they modelled true repentance by accepting the consequences of their sin. I love this. They knew the depths. They knew the depths of their cruelty, uh, of of what they had done. And the kings, even though they, even though they um, uh, fasted and repented and they prostrated themselves before the Lord, the king says, "Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger." The king knew that what was pronounced as judgment upon them was just and right, and they deserved it. And finally, the Assyrians modelled true repentance by demonstrating a change of direction. Not only did the king say, let everyone turn from his evil way, but remember, this was a nation whose very religion uh, was built around them, subjugating, uh, overcoming every nation before them. Their history, their hundreds of years of history, was just uh, a record of them bulldozing other nations over. They prided themselves in their technological weapons, advanced weapons of war. And when this judgment was pronounced upon them, they didn't say, gather the army, fortify the walls, barricade the gates. When this, and this is for hundreds of years of history, when this judgment was pronounced upon them, They prostrated themselves before the Lord. They called out to him for mercy. There was a great direction, a change of direction. And then, of course, we also said that, what about God changing his mind? There was judgment pronounced on these people, and then it didn't come to pass. In Jeremiah 18, we read read there that, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do from it. Even though this wasn't written until a couple of hundred years after the time of Jonah, there was enough scripture revealing the nature and heart of God that Jonah knew this to be true. The end of chapter 3, I think, was a great place to end the series. But Franz made me come back and do chapter 4. If you were going to to write a story, if you were going to make a movie, surely chapter 3 is where you would end it. Um, It was a great place to stop, but there's more. There is more. When I talked to my sister, I was telling my sister that I was doing Jonah, and she said, what is with chapter four? You know, it's, it's like, you know, we've gone through chapters one, two, three, you get to chapter four, and then it just stops. It's, it's like one of those movies that you're watching, you know, and, uh, 
and and you get to a, a you know a, a satisfying climax and ending, and then there's a few more scenes, and you know, and and it draws you in, and you've got these questions, and then it just fades. And you're like, no, 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 don't roll the credit, and then the credits come up, and you're like, oh, what is going on? That's what chapter four can feel like, but I trust that um, I trust that the Lord will. Uh, reveal to us much of what he has for Jonah and for us in chapter 4. There's plenty of us for us to consider here. And this morning, uh, I'd like to thank Rania for my other title of the message, Jonah the Mona. And um, if you'll turn with, turn with me to chapter 4, we'll also have it up here on the screen. And we'll read through chapter 4. And then we'll ask the Lord to bless his word, uh, and, uh, and we'll look at chapter 4. So you remember, um, the Ninevites have repented, the Lord's relented, and we start chapter, chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. At least he said, please, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, I thank you for your wonderful word. Father, I, I thank you, Lord, that you've preserved it here for us today. Lord, help us not only to hear what you are saying, but, Father, to understand. Father, help us not to think that this is so good for somebody else, but, Father, that this is so good for me. Father, would you teach us, would you lead us, would you bless us this morning, Lord, that we might know you were right, that we might know ourselves and that we might draw near to you, Father, because we love you and we want to serve you aright. Help us in this, Father, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
There's a saying, you know, that some have attributed to uh, Thomas Watson, the English Puritan. Others have attributed it to Martin Luther, which says that God can draw, God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. And as we've reviewed chapters one to three and chapter four, we've just read, perhaps you're already putting together what that might mean. And you might be asking yourself, but what if it's like a really, really crooked stick? Um, praise God, he is able to draw a straight line with any stick he chooses. In theological terms, we could put it this way, that God's good work always, always transcends the instrument that he uses. God's good work through you is not dependent on anything about you. God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, it says in Colossians. When I come to speak, I'm offered often comforted by the thought that if God can use a donkey for his higher, greater purposes, then he is able to use me if he so chooses. Do you know, though, that there is a stick-straightening process for every believer? There's a stick-straightening process. It starts at salvation, and who can tell me what it's called? It starts with S. Sorry? Sanctification. Thank you, Joel. Sanctification. It's the process that God lovingly uses in the life of every born-again believer to make them more like their Savior. And it includes this strict, this sanctification, the stick-straightening process. It includes what we said in chapter 1 when we said that one of the things a believer cannot escape from is God's faithfulness to discipline us. Because in disciplining us, He's also instructing us. He's also teaching us. And I think it's altogether amazing that God would be pleased to use wee straight sticks for his godly and higher purposes. As mentioned with Jonah, uh, you know, and the amazing revival that came through the message of one man to an entire uh, nation, it was that it was in order to show the, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Also in uh, 1 Corinthians, we read there, there that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what's maybe even more amazing to consider, and we've seen this in the life of Jonah, that God is not only at work in our obedient moments, but that God is at work in a right way, even in our disobedient moments. The subtitle to uh, Jonah the Moaner, I think, should be the unmerciful servant. He reminds me very much of that parable that Jesus told about the one who was forgiven so much himself, but then would not forgive others. 
Today, as we look through this passage, we'll, we'll do, so under, do so under three headings. We'll look at contention as Jonah contends with God in verses 1 to 4. And what we read there and consider there in those verses is, is I think, a little frightening. We'll look at correction in verses 5 to 9. Just like in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God will use some situations some circumstances to prepare Jonah for what he needs to learn. And then in verses 10 and 11, compassion, God shows Jonah what he is lacking and Jonah's misplaced affections. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You know, Jonah seems to be a pretty emotional sort of guy. I don't know if you've noticed that going through these passages. And if this was an account of a modern man and his reactions, I would be asking the question, Jonah, have you taken your medication? Um, when you think about how chapter 3 has ended, you know, with the greatest revival in all of the Bible, Violence and cruelty replaced in the nation with kindness and compassion. More than 600,000 souls that were destined for destruction now ushered into the kingdom. Jesus used the response and repentance of the Ninevites to condemn his own people when he said in Matthew, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and they'll condemn it. Why? Because they repented. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, if what we read in Luke 15, where, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If that's true, can you imagine the scene in heaven after 600,000 souls repented? We then transition from the end of chapter 3 to what we read here in Jonah chapter 4. What's Jonah's reaction to all these souls being saved and brought into the kingdom? He was not pleased. And on a scale of 1 to 10, he was not pleased 10 out of 10. He was exceedingly displeased. He was angry. The Hebrew word there for angry, uh, I'm glad James is not here, is kara. And it means to burn. It means to be hot, to be incensed. I don't think it's an exaggeration looking through chapter 4 to say that Jonah is near out of control. Here he's saying, I knew it. I knew it. I knew this would happen because you're so gracious and you're so merciful. And here he uh, paraphrases uh, Exodus chapter 34. Uh, what has God done that is so wrong according to Jonah? God's acted in perfect accordance with his will, with his nature, revealed in Scripture, and he's shown mercy and forgiveness to Jonah's enemies. 
He's forgiven them instead of destroying them. Jonah is at complete odds with God. We saw that materialize in chapter 1. We saw it materialize physically when Jonah was at odds with God. God told him to go northeast. And so Jonah tried to go a long way southwest. And here we see it materialize spiritually. What has brought joy to the heart of God in Nineveh? The same event has brought grief and anger to the heart of God. Because whilst Jonah knows the word of God, he has no idea. Perhaps he doesn't even have an interest in the heart of God. Jonah here is guilty of idolatry. He wants a God in his own image. He, he knows what the scripture says, but think about this. Although he knows what the scripture says, he doesn't want He doesn't want God to be God, not in this instance. Jonah Jonah doesn't want a God who is holy, omnipotent, sovereign, merciful, who's revealed his will to the sons of men. Jonah would be pleased to hear at this point if God acted completely contrary to his nature. And instead of offering mercy... He would have been pleased for them to be utterly destroyed. Fortunately for us and for the Assyrians, there are many scriptures that make it clear that Yahweh delights in mercy. Jonah knows this. He couldn't be any further away from God spiritually than he is right here in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah has, has obeyed God by doing what God wanted. But God has angered Jonah by not doing what Jonah wanted. I'll say that again. Jonah has obeyed God by doing what God wanted. But God has angered Jonah by not doing what Jonah wanted. I wonder if anyone here has ever felt like Jonah because God is not doing what you wanted. Have you been angry because God has acted, or you think that God has acted in a way that you didn't want him to act. It's pretty easy to tell when that's happening because usually there's a few sentences, there's a few thoughts that go through our mind. They usually start with words like, that's not fair, or why can't you just, or maybe we might say, they have so much. And believe me, we do not want a God who would please us by doing what we want. We should be comforted by the fact that God always has, always will act in complete accordance with his word in Scripture. Malachi 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And in Numbers we read, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Jonah's complaint, his grievance, is that God has acted exactly as God should have acted, in perfect harmony with his word. And then he says, you've acted in a way that makes me want to die. And he foolishly asks the Lord to take his life in verse 3. And I think if I were God at that point, I just might be inclined to grant Jonah his, his request. By the way he's responded, by the way he's acted, by the by his present course of action, but God is God. There is none other. 
God will in this passage reveal to us, I think, his, his beautiful character, long-suffering, merciful, sovereign, and compassion, compassionate. We saw in chapter 1, didn't we, a prophet who was disobedient, who was indifferent, stubborn, prayerless. And in chapter 4, unfortunately, we're going to add to that list a prophet who is prideful and hypocritical. Anyone who presumes to correct God, to tell God this is not the best course of action, has a lot of pride. He's indignant. He's already said, in effect, that's not fair in verse 2. He's irreverent in the way he speaks to God. It's almost frightening the way he responds to the God he claims to serve. This is the sovereign creator Jonah is speaking with here. Uh, And I don't think it should be understated because Jonah, remember, he has listed the wonderful attributes, the wonderful character of God, the wonderful character of God that should be always celebrated always celebrated and he says why did you have to do that i hate what you've done i hate it so much i want to die i just can't help but think of that passage where it says woe unto them that could that call good evil and evil good in our introduction to jonah last year we talked about when god used jonah to to deliver a message of mercy and prosperity to Jeroboam the second. Don't know if you remember back then, um, God's message through Jonah to King Ber- Jeroboam was that uh, God would allow them to expand the borders and take back a lot of land that the Israels had lost. And this was at a time when Israel was in rebellion. This was this was a, an undeserved mercy of God. Jonah gladly went and declared the message of God to King Jeroboam. Gladly. When God saved him from the, from the giant fish, when he's delivered from death, he's full of thanksgiving and praise to God for the mercy and forgiveness displayed to him. There's no complaint from Jonah then. But now, now he's upset because just like with the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son that we've talked about before, just like then, Jonah is also upset about mercy being shown to someone, to a people, who in his view deserve no mercy. And what do you call it when you're happy for God to do something for you, but you're not happy for God to do the same thing for somebody else? Surely that is a hypocrite. Jonah is a hypocrite whose pride has blinded him, but God is going to help him see God's going to help him see his heart through some more lessons and through three questions that will come to him because the Lord disciplines all those whom he loves. We'll see from verse 4 and following God revealing his heart to Jonah. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And this is the response of Jonah. And I get this this sort of sense of deja vu from chapter 1 when, when the captain of the ship came to Jonah and said, Arise, call out to your God. Maybe your God, maybe your God will give a thought to us that we won't perish. This was the same response of Jonah. Nothing. Silence. Not a word. You, you can tell you know, people are in a bad place 
by the words that come out of their mouth. But sometimes, sometimes you can tell people are in a bad place by the words that don't come out of their mouth. There's so much of Jonah in chapter 1, uh, sorry, so much of Jonah from chapter 1 in Jonah in chapter 4. It's almost like, it's almost like the repentance of chapter 2 and the obedience of chapter 3 weren't there. But I can't be too hard on Jonah because uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find a lot of the Philip before I've repented, before the Lord with tears, I find a lot of the Philip in the Philip after I've repented and confessed my sins with, with tears. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Romans 7, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of it and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Jonah asks this question, sorry, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah just completely ignores it, goes out of the city and makes some sort of a light shelter till he should see what should become of the city. No doubt Jonah's thinking, if you knew the Assyrians like I knew the Assyrians, you'll know this repentance won't last. It'll be short-lived. Just as quickly as it came, it's going to disappear. And then God will see, and then God's going to judge them. You know, years ago when they first started the... um, the anti-smoking campaigns, they used to show these really graphic pictures of like diseased organs. I think they still have them on the cigarette packets. I think if we could project Jonah's heart onto a, onto a screen, it would be disturbing. And I think you would see a diseased heart. God has used Jonah to usher more souls into the kingdom at one time than any other man in all of history. Heaven has been rejoicing, and even as Jonah is sitting under that booth watching, no doubt there is still much commotion in Nineveh as people continue to denounce their, their former pagan and idolatrous ways. People, no doubt, are still crying out to God in gratitude for delivering them and their children spiritually and physically from death. But Jonah, what would please Jonah's heart? No doubt a scene like this. No doubt fire and brimstone raining down from heaven and utterly wiping every trace of the Assyrian capital from the face of the earth. Such a contrast between what pleases the heart of God and what pleases the heart of Jonah. God will will lovingly deal with his prophet through a series of questions, the first of which has just been ignored. But just like in chapter 1, when Jonah didn't want to face what God was doing, God will make it impossible for Jonah to ignore what God is doing again. And so God's desire is to align Jonah's will with his will, God's heart, uh, Jonah's heart with God's heart. And what's really incredible is that God would be so patient and so gentle with a man like Jonah, with men and women like you and me. 
Knowing the mood that Jonah was in, I can't imagine that his shelter was put together too well. And I don't know if any of the men here have experienced that. If you're like really, really angry in a really, really bad mood and you're trying to build something, uh, it's a silly question because with all the godly men here, you probably don't have got no idea what that's like. But I can imagine, I can imagine, as I'm sure you can too, that that Jonah's mood, his disposition, certainly would not have aided his shelter-making skills. And so the Lord gives him some help, some help in the form of a plant that supernaturally grows up overnight and turns Jonah's spindly shelter into a cool, shady place, maybe that was even quite pleasant. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if with the plant, if the Lord also, like, dropped, at a few degrees as well. Uh, who knows? Uh, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the plant. Here we read for the very first time in four chapters in the whole book of Jonah, the only time we read that Jonah is happy. In verse 1, we read that he was exceedingly displeased because so many people had not been put to death. And now he's gone from being exceedingly mad, he's gone from mad to exceedingly glad. He was angry and upset over God's mercy and forgiveness, but now he's in a happy place and all is right with the world because of a plant. Jonah's hypocrisy is on display again. He's, he's not happy when God does something for someone else, for the Assyrians, but he's very happy when God does something for him. It's all about me. His hypocrisy is not the cause, it's a symptom, and God will deal with that symptom and help Jonah to see that very soon. You know, while I'm sure that he's happy about the shade and the relief, that the shade brings, it may also be in Jonah's mind a sign that perhaps God is coming around. Maybe maybe their repentance is waning. Maybe this is a sign of, of God's favor and Jonah and, and God is coming around. So when what happens next happens, it is a double blow to Jonah. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. In verses 6 to 8, we're reminded of God's sovereign control over all his creation, from worms to whales. In chapter 1, we read how God appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And here in verses 6 to 8, we read that God appoints a plant, he appoints a worm, and he appoints a wind. Notice with me that that although 600,000 people have been saved, the task that God gave to Jonah has been completed God's work is still continuing. God is multitasking. Praise God, he hasn't finished. He hasn't finished because he's not finished with his prophet. 
Just as it's impossible to escape God's love for you, just as it's impossible to escape God's correction of you, it's also just as impossible to escape God as your teacher. Because all of creation is God's classroom. And he can bring any and all circumstances to bear on your life to make you listen. And friends, this is good news. This is what we see here as God is graciously dealing with Jonah by asking him a series of questions and arranging a few circumstances. Just as quickly as the plant grew up and provided relief to Jonah, in verse 6, just as quickly it withers and fades as God appoints a worm. I love uh, the way the text there says that it attacked the plant. This no doubt was like the most luscious plant for miles around and God found a really hungry worm who found that plant and no doubt feasted on the roots all night long. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And what we read following in verse 8 God appoints a wind, a scorching east wind. You know, we lived many years in Carnarvon. I had a, um, a this old Land Rover, would go absolutely anywhere, very old Land Rover. And um, it was one with the split windscreens and uh, had a little, had these little ventilation flaps, very flash. You push the lever down and the flap opens at the front under the windscreen. So we were going out to Rocky Pool. That's like uh, inland from Carnarvon on the Gascoigne Junction Road, the road to nowhere. It was well over 40 degrees in Carnarvon. And so on the gravel road going out to Gassy Junction, I don't know what the temperature was, but it was hot. And, and I opened this flap. It was pretty flash because, you know, I had a flap there for the driver and the passenger had one too. And, uh, and so I opened the flap and it was just like a fan forced oven. Like this, the air that came in me and hit, hit me in the chest. It was like, it was like burning. In the old days, you know, in the new days, you open the fan forced oven and the switches off. In the old days, you open the oven and if it's a fan forced oven, it just keeps blowing all this hot air out. That's what it was like when I opened this flap. The air was, it was unbearable. I closed the flap because it was better sweltering inside the Land Rover than it was to have that flap open and have that air. That air would sap any moisture from you very, very quickly. So I can just imagine, I can, when I read this passage, that's exactly what I thought of, this scorching east wind. And, um, and as well as sucking the moisture from you, from, from, from Jonah, this wind, it's, it's also very descriptive. I don't know if the, uh, obviously that shelter that Jonah built has reverted to its former spindly frame maybe it even blew over in this in this wind because verse 8 is quite descriptive it said that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint so you've got this scorching fan forced oven wind he's got no protection I had this beautiful Land Rover to sit in and uh and Jonah's got nothing and and the sun is beating down on him and I can understand why he would cry for death. 
But the Lord is wanting to teach Jonah that though he is a very passionate man, and you get, you get the idea, don't you, that, that he's, he's prone to being led by his emotions. They rise up and spill over, so he makes rash decisions, so he utters rash words. Though he is a very passionate man, the Lord wants to teach him that he is not a compassionate man. He's passionate, but not compassionate. How can you love the scriptures, the word of God, without loving the God of the word? How can you love the God of the word without loving the heart of the God of the word? When God the Son, the Lord Jesus, came to earth, what marked his ministry was compassion. The very first reference there in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord Jesus was often moved with compassion by those around him and he also taught compassion. We've talked about uh, the the prodigal son a number of times. Uh, There's that reference there, you know, that that... Jesus not only displayed compassion, but he taught compassion in a number of parables because this is the very nature, this is the heart of God. Jesus said, didn't he, that the, that the law and the prophets are summed up in two commandments. The first, summed up by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. What was the second commandment? To love your neighbour. Tennis, as yourself. Jonah, are you listening? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Notice that Jesus said the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jonah, you're so far from the heart of God. And Jonah goes on and Jonah asks that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. And notice God doesn't directly address his question because God sees Jonah's heart. And so Jonah says, Jonah says, I want to die. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? The scorching east wind, the searing hot sun made life miserable, but there was something even more miserable. There was something Jonah was even more upset about. The plant. And so, what's Jonah's response? God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. If our kids spoke to us the way that Jonah here speaks to God, they would be in some sort of trouble. But here, here comes the lesson of four chapters of this book to Jonah in the last two verses. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Jonah claims that his anger is justified, but God will show him that it is not Justified. Jonah, is this, is this what you're so upset about? 
Is this what you're so upset about? A few withered leaves on a plant? Are you trying to tell me that all your affection, all your attention, all your care is focused towards a plant that you've known for one day? You didn't cultivate the ground, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't water it, you didn't weed it, and even if you did all those things, you didn't cause it to grow. That is the domain of God. Everything on the face of the earth belongs to the God who created everything. That 120,000 persons reference who do not know their right from their left is no doubt a reference to the children of Nineveh. And whilst this is a picture of some Middle Eastern children, obviously not from the time of Nineveh, but 3,000 years ago, children then looked just like children look today. And this here, this is a picture of Optus Stadium. Optus Stadium holds a maximum of 30,000 people. So in Nineveh, there were four Optus Stadiums worth of young children, children too young to know their right hand from their left. So these these children here are probably quite a bit older than the children that's referred to here in Nineveh. Jonah, are you trying to tell me that, that one plant is more important to you, that you're more passionate about one leafy plant than you are about the lives of 120,000 children? God's saying to Jonah, these are young innocents. They have no blood on their hands. They don't know right from wrong, their right hand from their left hand, like the cattle. What have they done that you should so earnestly want them to be wiped from the face of the earth? You pitied a plant that you had no connection to. You valued the life of a plant over thousands, over a 100,000 children. You pitied the plant you had no connection uh, connection to. You valued the life of a plant. And I, the Lord, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who live in it. I own the, the wind, the worm, the whales, the plants and the people. Is it not right I should pity that which I own, the Lord says, including Nineveh? All those souls are mine. What's Jonah's response? It's the same response that we've seen from Jonah. And this is how the book ends. There is no response. Many scholars, you know, believe that what we've read here in the book of Jonah comes from the pen of the prophet Jonah. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement because it reminds us that God in his great mercy has used a man who was crooked. He was a prophet. He was redeemed. He knew the scriptures. And he knew even before he left for Tarshish that God is a gracious, compassionate God. And God throughout the whole book of Jonah has been patiently teaching him And even as the book ends, God is still patiently teaching him. 
God's had mercy upon this man. He loves this man. He's made use of this man. But the work of God, the work that God has done, cannot be explained by this man, can it? If the work in Nineveh had depended on this man's faithfulness, it would never, ever have happened. God has taken a crooked stick and drawn a straight line, and that should be of great encouragement to each one of us. God is patient with me. God uses me despite me. God is patient with you. God uses you despite you. That's the wonder of our God who, who doesn't often use the miraculous, who doesn't use angelic beings to deliver the saving gospel, but has chosen to use vessels of clay and crooked sticks. And just in conclusion, you know, in many ways, Jonah is a reflection of Israel. Happy to receive the mercies of God, even perhaps thinking that those mercies are somehow owed to them, but without pity, without pity for the nations that are perishing around them and not living out the fullness of their calling, which was for them to be a light to the nations. And uh, an application closer to home, and one that's hard for me as I look into God's perfect word, isn't this also a picture of the church today, of you and me, happy to receive the mercies and blessings of God? Sometimes even thinking that the blessings we receive are somehow owed to us, our freedom, our peace, our prosperity whilst at the same time not living out our calling to be a light and witness to those who are perishing around us, caring more for our comforts, for our investments, our holidays, our retirement, caring more for these things than those who are perishing around us. God, be merciful to me. God, be merciful to us. And may he teach us as he did Jonah. Oh, that we would each come to love what God loves. Oh, that we would each have a heart of compassion and mercy for those who are perishing as God does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that you're pleased to use crooked sticks. Lord, we should be so confident in our God, not in our own abilities. Oh, Father, that we would just be faithful to do what you've called us to do. Father, cause us not to be a people. Lord, who, who say we believe but don't do what we believe. Father, help me in this. Father, I pray that you would indeed deal with us as you did Jonah. Father, would you bring situation and circumstance to bear? Father, would you correct us because you love us? Father, I pray for your hand upon us, Lord, that we might be a people set apart, holy, Father, a people who love you and obey you. And Father, a people who are compassionate because you're a compassionate and a merciful God. Father, I ask this truly in Jesus' name. Amen.